take your Bibles and turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. And this morning I want to continue our study of one of the most fundamental aspects of the Christian life, and that is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Um, Let me read for you this classic text, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Father, we thank you for uh, your Spirit's power. We know that he works most powerfully through his word. Uh, Thank you for uh, giving us this this text, Lord, that really clarifies uh, so much of the confusion that's out there today when it comes to the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that your Spirit would come now and illuminate us. No one better to ask to, to, to make it clear who he is and how he functions and how he manifests himself than the Spirit himself. And so, Spirit, we ask you uh, to make it crystal clear exactly uh, who you are and uh, how you uh, function in our lives and uh, what we should expect from you uh, by way of manifesting yourself in our lives and in the life of this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned last week that it is absolutely critical that we have a clear understanding of the filling of the Holy Spirit because without it, we will never be able to live our lives the way God intends. Aren't you glad that God never intended for us to live the Christian life on our own? I mean, can you imagine trying to live the Christian life every day in your own wisdom and your own strength? It would be impossible. And so he graciously provided us a helper, a paraclete, a paracletos, someone to come alongside us and to help us, and that someone is obviously who? The Holy Spirit. We're learning that, learning about him from our study in the Gospel of John. Um, And basically what we need to understand is that the moment we become a Christian, we are baptized by the Spirit and we are sealed with the Spirit. In other words, we are placed in the body of Christ and we're given a token of our future inheritance as Christ's bride. It's, it's like uh, the Spirit of God is like our engagement ring that, that Jesus is coming back to get us, to marry us. Um, and so from then on, from that moment on, the Holy Spirit permanently dwells within us Or if you have a hard time understanding the Spirit being in you, another way to view it is that His his presence permanently abides with us to help us to do the things that God wants us to do and not to do the things that He doesn't want us to do. And so never again do we ever have to be baptized or sealed or indwelled by the Spirit. Nowhere in the Bible... Are we ever commanded to be baptized by the Holy Spirit or sealed with the Holy Spirit or indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Why? Because these are all one-time acts that God performs in us the moment we get saved. But the Bible does command us to be filled with the Spirit. So obviously, this implies something more than the Holy Spirit coming into us or falling upon us since He's already in us or with us. And I think after last week's message, I thought I need to make sure that it's, that it's clear in your mind the difference between the indwelling of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit, okay? The indwelling of the Spirit is what happens the moment you're saved. 
that you're indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit comes into your life to help you. The filling of the Spirit is not the the Spirit going anywhere or coming anywhere or falling anywhere. It's simply Him controlling you. So the indwelling of the Spirit is the Spirit coming into us, and the filling of the Spirit is the Spirit controlling us. And we said this last week, and this was a key point, that we will never get any more of the Holy Spirit than we already have. You got all you're going to get. But the Holy Spirit can get more of you, right? He can gain more and more control over our lives. And so as I mentioned last week, the filling of the Spirit is one of the most controversial, confusing subjects within the church. And many sincere, well-meaning believers think that being filled with the Holy Spirit involves some special, sensationalized, spectacular experience when, when the Spirit zaps you and, and you feel this supernatural flow of power into your body and, and it causes you to jump around or shake or fall on the ground or run all, run all around. In fact, uh, just to kind of provide some perspective here, so that we don't all end up becoming Bible thumpers who you know, go out of here with our new shiny gun and we put a bullet in and we go around whacking people over the heads with our Bible. Oh, you believe in that stuff? Whack. Uh, I met a guy just uh, a couple days ago um, who I uh, sincerely believed uh, was a true Christian. Um, he came by my house. So we had something on Craigslist and he came by and we visited and we were standing in my garage and he asked me, or I asked him what he did for a living. He told me, then he asked me what I do for a living. I told him I was a pastor. That's always a great lead in, you know, talk about the things of the Lord, right? But he, I mean, he just launched into this uh, testimony of how he had been radically saved out of a life of sin. He lived down in the city and, and uh, he told me just a brief testimony and I was just so encouraged and I was rejoicing in this guy's transformation and how passionate he was to, 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 to follow Christ, to, to honor Christ, to obey Christ, to live for Christ, and uh, just very uh, stimulated and challenged by this guy's testimony. And then he began to tell me where he went to church, and I, well, we won't name where he goes to church, but, uh, but it was obviously more of a charismatic church, and he talked about how he had been, how he, God had given him the, the ability to baptize people with the Spirit and, and, and to grab a hold of people, and he could feel the flow of the Spirit through him, you know, into them, and the warm feelings and the fuzzies and all the things he was trying to describe. And, and believe it or not, I didn't say a word other than, really, that's interesting. <laughs> I didn't feel like it was the time or the place, right, to, to, to go to the mat in my garage with a guy about, you know, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, instead, I chose just to, be, um, just to be encouraged by the fact that I was standing there in my garage with a, with a brother in Christ. And, and knowing that this whole issue, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, in many ways is, is, a, is a secondary issue in the sense that it's not something that you have to necessarily get perfectly right uh, to go to heaven, Amen? You know what I'm talking about? Okay? So, so you might have a skewed perspective on the Spirit of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life as a believer, but that's not going to make you end up, you know, in hell necessarily. And so I, I think we need to keep this all in perspective, okay? This is, a, this is a very, very important subject that we need to be clear on because it does cause a lot of confusion in a lot of people's minds, but more importantly, in their lives, and so it's, it's more that we want to help people uh, be clear in their thinking about the Holy Spirit so they don't try to live their lives um, running around, right, uh, from one temporary emotional experience to another rather than just simply surrendering their lives to the Spirit's control on a daily basis. That's what, that's what the, the filling of the Spirit is all about. And so 
unfortunately, there's a lot of people that I, I think never truly experience what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And so they settle for this short-lived, shallow substitute. And that's why this passage in Ephesians 5, I think, is so helpful because Paul clarifies um, this issue by explaining exactly what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, how we get filled with the Holy Spirit, and how we know we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we began looking at this passage last week, and we looked at the first point. Uh, Hopefully you grabbed an outline in the back when you came in. You feel free to jump up and grab one if you'd like, or grab it as you leave today. Um, but, But we looked last week at the command, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit, and we said probably the simplest way to, 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 to clear up the confusion about what it means to be filled with the Spirit is just change the word filled with the word controlled. Okay? So whenever you see the word filled with the Spirit, you, you just insert the word controlled. That's what it literally means, to be controlled by or with the Spirit. He's not talking about the Spirit physically entering your body or coming upon you suddenly and overwhelming you with all these warm, fuzzy emotions, right, so that you lose control and you do all these crazy things. In fact, being filled with the Spirit, we said last week, produces the exact opposite effect. It helps you be under control. It gives you self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And again, Paul was contrasting here being filled with the Holy Spirit with the pagan religious rituals that were going on in Ephesus, uh, up there on the, the hillside in the temple of Diana, uh, and, and, and the, uh, the believers that he was writing to here had formally practiced uh, these kind of pagan rituals, and they were basically drunken orgies uh, where they would work themselves up into this wild frenzy until they were completely out of control. And somehow communing with the gods uh, at that moment. And in contrast, Paul commanded them to be completely under, under the control of the Spirit. And so he says very clearly, be filled with the Spirit. We said this is a plural, present, passive imperative, which for most people, you're like, yeah, whatever. But it does provide us some insight into what Paul was saying here. The fact that it's an imperative means that it's a command. It's not just a good idea, a good suggestion, a helpful hint. This is a non-optional requirement for every Christian to be filled with the Spirit. It's a passive command. In other words, we don't do it ourselves. We don't fill ourselves. We must let the Holy Spirit fill us and control us. It's present tense in that in that being Being filled with the Spirit is not something that happens just one time uh, or every once in a while, for that matter. It needs to to occur repeatedly. It's literally, you could read it this way, but keep being filled or controlled with the Spirit. And we also said it was a plural, a plural command here. In other words, it's not something just for the really super spiritual people in the church, you know, like some people are really Spirit-filled and others of you, nah, not really. Uh, This is for all of us. We all have the responsibility to daily yield ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit. Now the question is, how do we do that? And what I want to attempt to do here this morning is to take the filling of the Holy Spirit out of the ethereal, the undefinable, and make it very practical and very doable. And so I want to look at the second section here, the second point of our outline, and that is the conditions. The conditions, how do you get filled with the Spirit? Now, obviously, Paul didn't tell us specifically here how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes right after the command into verse 19 where he talks about the the fruit of being filled with the Spirit, the consequences, we'll look at at those in in a moment. So, So how do we know how to be filled with the Spirit? Well... Some of this is implied from this text, 
But most of it we can glean uh, from other places in the New Testament where Paul talked about the Holy Spirit. And, and what we can discern from his other letters is that there are certain conditions that must be met in order for the Spirit to fill us or control us. In other words, we need to obey other commands of Scripture in order to obey this command to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, and uh, there, there are things that we need to do in order to maintain a right relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so I want to give you five things we need to do to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Five things that you need to do to be filled by or controlled by the Holy Spirit. And I think this, this second point, I think, may be the most practical, the most helpful uh, when it comes to understanding the doctrine of the, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so here we go. Number one, the first thing you need to do to be filled with the Spirit or controlled by the Spirit is don't grieve Him or quench Him. Don't grieve the Spirit or quench the Spirit. We're right there in Ephesians chapter 5. Just look back to the previous chapter, Ephesians 4 verse 30. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were seated for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then it goes on to say, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. In other words, if you are doing all those things in verse 31 and not doing those things in verse 32, you're grieving the Spirit of God. You say, what, is, what does it mean to grieve the Spirit of God? Grieving the Spirit is doing, basically doing what He doesn't want us to do. Okay, that's grieving the Spirit. When we do something that He doesn't want us to do. Stealing, swearing, these are things surrounding this passage, previous verses talking about let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, don't steal. Um, uh, so stealing, swearing, getting angry, gossiping, slandering, harboring bitterness, really committing any kind of sin. Whenever you sin, you grieve the Spirit of God. You, you cause the Spirit of God to be grieved, to be sad. Well, there's not only the grieving of the Holy Spirit, there's the quenching of the Spirit. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. It simply says, Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. So if grieving the Spirit is doing something that the Spirit doesn't want you to do or that God doesn't want you to do, quenching the Spirit is not doing what He wants you to do. It's not doing what he wants you to do. So maybe he's calling you to lead in some situation or to serve in some particular ministry or to maybe share the gospel with someone in your life and you refuse to do that. You're quenching the Holy Spirit. It's like you're putting a blanket on the Holy Spirit. You're pouring pouring some water on the fire of the Holy Spirit. And so naturally, if you are quenching the Spirit or grieving the Spirit, he's not filling you. He's not controlling you. And so the first step to being filled with or controlled by the Spirit is to confess and repent of those sins in your life that quench Him or grieve Him. And so basically you can take all the sin in your life and put it into one or two categories. There's sins of omission and there's sins of commission. Sins of commission are the things that, you're, that you do that you're not supposed to do, okay, those are the things that grieve the Spirit. And then there's sins of omission, things that you're supposed to do that you don't do. 
And those are the things that quench the Spirit. And so the bottom line, if you have sin in your life, whether it's sin of omission, sin of commission, it prevents you from being controlled by the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, right there and there, that's a very practical, very doable thing. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Number two, yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. Yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. You're familiar, I'm sure, with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses uh, 19 and 20. It says, do you, not, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And then, of course, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul said this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Point is this, okay? Your body is not your own. It belongs to who? It belongs to God. He bought you, and therefore he owns you and has the right to control you and use you in any way he chooses to glorify himself. And so consequently, we need to offer ourselves to him as living sacrifices so that he can be glorified and be exalted in our lives. And so as it says in Romans chapter 6, we need to yield every member of our body to the Lord for his service, our minds, our eyes, our, our ears, our voices, our hands, our feet, our, our, our temple. We need to yield our temple to the Lord along with our time, our, our, our talents, and our, our treasures so that he can do with them whatever he chooses to do. We have no right to do whatever we want with our lives. It, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him. And that's why we need to continually relinquish the control of our lives to the Spirit, surrendering our will to the Spirit's will, doing what the Spirit wants us to do rather than doing what we want to do. I think a simple example of how this works, this yielding yourself to the Spirit, is when you're faced with temptation. And when you're staring a, a, a temptation in the face, you're feeling the pressure to give in to that particular temptation, to give in to that particular sin. And at that very same moment, right, the Holy Spirit who is in you, right, abiding with you, is convicting you and wooing you to be holy as He is holy. And so there's this wrestling match, right? You're, you're feeling the pressure to give in to the temptation, and you need to instead give in and yield to the Holy Spirit. I love um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, where Paul is exhorting the Thessalonian believers to be sexually pure. He's talking about this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, and then he goes through and lists all these ways that, that purity is possible. And then he ends in verse 8, he says, so he who rejects this is not rejecting men, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And I love this because Paul's just reminding them, saying, listen, you trying to be trying to stay sexually pure in this sexually charged society that we live is, is, is humanly impossible. You need help. And so I've given you help, and, and who is that help? The Holy Spirit. And I think it's interesting that, that he emphasizes uh, the one attribute of the Spirit that we need the most to stay pure, and that is what? His holiness. And so he gives us his, his Spirit, his Holy Spirit, to help us overcome sin. But we need to yield, right, submit to 
The Spirit's pressure, the pressure that the Spirit puts on us as He woos us, as He convicts us, and as He, as he whispers, if you will, the Word of God into our minds and our hearts about the consequences of sin or the glories of Christ or whatever it is that he's, the Spirit of God is reminding of us to resist that temptation. And so we need to yield ourselves to the Spirit. So we need to not quench or grieve the Spirit, number one. We need to yield ourselves to Him. Number three, we need to depend on Him. We need to depend on him. Uh, turn over to Galatians chapter 5. This is a familiar passage. Uh, we, we know this well, I'm sure. It's uh, all about walking by the Spirit. And in verse 16, Paul says, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And so Paul introduces this whole idea of walking by the Spirit. That word walk is just a synonym for the word live. So he's basically saying live by the Spirit. In fact, at the very end, he says it in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. They're really synonymous terms. So he's talking about you're living in continual dependence on the Spirit for everything we do in our lives. Notice the fruit of the Spirit as opposed to the fruit of the flesh. We, we all, we're all familiar with verses 22 and 23 about the fruit of the Spirit, but look at the fruit of the flesh. Verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, if you are doing any of those things in that list, you are not in the spirit, you are in the flesh. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is the exact opposite. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now let me ask you a question. How do you walk? Literally walk. One step at a time. And so in the same way, we need to learn to depend on the Holy Spirit one day at a time, one decision at a time, one trial at a time, one temptation at a time, one witnessing opportunity at a time, etc., etc., etc. And the reason why we need to learn to depend on the Spirit is because we realize that we cannot do anything apart from His filling and controlling us. And so this should motivate us to develop a lifestyle of trusting and relying upon Him for everything. And again, going back to the implications of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18... And this comparison, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. When a person abuses alcohol, they eventually acquire a, what? Dependence on that, right? On alcohol to the point that they feel like they can't make it through a day without a drink. And so the first thing they do when they wake up in the morning is what? Reach for that bottle, Right? And so they, they, they go back to the bottle over and over again until it becomes a way of life. It becomes a habit. And in, in a similar way, we need to return to the Holy Spirit over and over again until it becomes just a way of life. 
We, we need to acquire such a dependence on the Holy Spirit that we feel like we cannot make it through a day without Him. And so the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning is we reach for the Holy Spirit. I've told you in the past that, that, that the longer I live, the, the more often my first waking thought as I'm coming back into consciousness from a night's rest is, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But quickly on the heels of that should be, help me, Holy Spirit. God be merciful to me, a sinner. God, help me, Holy Spirit. Why? Because I cannot make it through the day without you. I'm going to completely mess up without the Spirit's filling and controlling everything I say and do. Why? Because our flesh, right, desires to sin, and all day it will be looking for opportunities to satisfy itself, and so we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to fight against and resist the desires of the flesh. And you know this to be true, right? The Holy Spirit and the flesh are constantly at war for control of us. Who's going to control you? Is it your flesh or the Spirit? And at any, any given time in your life, you're either in the flesh or you're in the spirit. You can never be in between, so like partially in the flesh, partially in the spirit. No, you're either all in the flesh or you're all in the spirit. And it can change quickly, right? I mean, you can walk out of here being in the spirit, hop in the car and head to lunch, and your spouse says something you don't appreciate, and, and you just got, went from the spirit to the flesh in two seconds, right? And the way you respond, your kids do something that makes you mad, and you start yelling and screaming, and you're like, whoa, I just got in the flesh, That's why we need to depend on the Holy Spirit every moment of every day. And so we need to learn to depend on the Holy Spirit. If you want to be filled by the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit, you need to depend on the Holy Spirit. Number four, another thing you need to do, um, another condition of being filled with the Holy Spirit is to dwell on His Word. To dwell on His Word. Notice Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Well, what is, first of all, the word of Christ? It's, again, it's synonymous with the word of God. It's it's the, the scriptures is what he's talking about. Let the scriptures, the word of Christ, richly dwell within you. What does it mean to let the scriptures or the Bible richly dwell within you? It means that you read the Bible, you study it, you meditate on it, you memorize the word of God until your heart and your mind becomes completely saturated and your thinking and acting become completely controlled by the Word of God. The, the Bible just kind of courses through your veins. It's what Spurgeon said, that his desire for his people uh, that in his church would be that their blood would be bibline. That wherever you cut them, they would just bleed the Bible. And, and that's what it means to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. But I want you to notice something here. When it says, let the word of Christ which you dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Does verse, does verse 16 and 17 sound familiar? Well, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it's basically verbatim, word for word. When he says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus to Christ, even the Father. Sounds like the same exact results. 
of being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word richly dwell in your hearts. They're the exact same results. In other words, the same thing happens to us when we're filled with the Word of God as when we're filled with the Spirit. And so what's the conclusion? The conclusion is that being filled with God's Spirit is synonymous with being filled with God's Word. And so as you study and submit and yield your life to God's Word, you are at the same time submitting and yielding your life to the Holy Spirit. And so the more your life is controlled by the Bible, the more your life is controlled by the Spirit. God's Word is the sword of the Spirit, right? Ephesians 6, 17. He inspired it and he uses it as his main tool to accomplish his work in our lives. And so if you want to be under the control of the Spirit, you want to be filled with the Spirit, be controlled by the Word of God, be filled with the Word of God. Lastly, number five, another condition here, a final condition to be filled or controlled by the Spirit is thirst for the glory of the one who sent him. Thirst for the glory of the one who sent him. Now, this is a principle taken from the Gospel of John. If you remember in John chapter 7, Jesus said this in verse 37, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so Jesus himself made a connection between thirsting for him and receiving, right, the Holy Spirit. He went on in John chapter 14. And we just looked at this recently. Just me, John 16, verse 14, describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It says, He will glorify me, for He will take of mine and will disclose it to you. In other words, the Spirit is not going to glorify Himself. He's going to glorify Christ. Now again, going back to the implication of Ephesians Five and the, the example of a drunk person, uh, an alcoholic craves alcohol to the point that they will sacrifice everything and anything, no matter how precious, to get another drink. And in the same way, I think we need to crave Christ to the point that we're willing to sacrifice everything and anything to gain Him. That was the point of the little parable that Jesus told about the kingdom of heaven is like the man who found a treasure in the field. This is Matthew 13. And he was so impressed by this treasure, he wanted it so badly, he went and sold everything he had, bought the field so he could get the treasure. Who's the treasure? Christ. He goes on and says, hey, the kingdom of heaven is also like a, a pearl trader who found this pearl of great price. And he, he'd been looking the entire life uh, trading and buying pearls. And he, he found this one pearl. And he knew that he would never find another pearl this great. And so he sold everything he had to get this one pearl. Who's that pearl? It's Jesus Christ. The point is that we need to crave Christ and let him become our consuming passion in our lives. Listen, the Holy Spirit's consuming passion is not to exalt himself, but to exalt and glorify Jesus Christ. The glory of Christ controls everything that the Spirit does. 
And if we want to be filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit, then the glory of Christ must control everything we say and everything we do. When our consuming passion is that Christ will be glorified in and through our lives, then guess what? We are lined up with the Spirit. We are in sync with the Spirit. When you want Christ to be glorified above all else, then you are perfectly in sync with the Holy Spirit because that is His passion. And so if we're being controlled by the same thing the Spirit is, then we are being controlled by the Spirit. And so just in summary here, the way we get filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit is to confess our sin, those things that grieve Him, those things that quench Him, yield every area of our life to Him, continuously depend on Him, study and apply the the Word of God, and thirst for the glory of Christ. Thirst for the glory of Christ. Of Christ. Now, I don't know how to make being filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit any more practical than that. Instead of waiting around to get zapped, right, when you least expect it, right, these are some things that you can do on a daily basis and have the confidence that you are filled and controlled by the Spirit. Now, one other thing I want to say here, uh, virtually all of these things are applied through prayer. It's like you're staring at these five things and like, okay, great, I want to I I apply those to my life. But you need a tool to, to implement those things in your life, and that tool is prayer. And, and you see all these connections throughout the New Testament uh, regarding uh, or between uh, prayer and the Spirit of God. For example, in Acts 1.14, before the day of Pentecost, uh, the disciples, I believe, spent the majority of their time in the upper room doing what? Praying. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. In chapter 4, verse 31, when they were confronted about preaching uh, the good news of Christ and they were, they were shut down by the authorities and said, hey, stop speaking about what you have seen and what you've heard. And they're like, well, are you kidding me? We can't help ourselves. And so they took the matter to the Lord in prayer. And it says in verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And of course, right here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 here in the, the wider context of being filled with the Holy Spirit, he says in Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the, who? In the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance, petition for all the saints. And so, um, so much of what it means to be filled uh, with the Holy Spirit, these conditions to be filled with the Holy Spirit, be controlled by the Holy Spirit, uh, are implemented through prayer. And so, if your prayer life stinks, <laughs> you're gonna have a hard time being filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so what a great incentive, right, to, to get after it in your prayer life and ask the Lord to really improve your prayer life because you need to be able to pray these things into reality, if you will, in your life. And so we've seen the command. We've seen the conditions. Now let's look at the consequences. The consequences. How do you know that you're filled with the Spirit. How do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? And notice back in Ephesians 5, verses 19 through 21, uh, Paul followed up his command to be filled with the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit, uh, with four present participles that basically explain what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Paul 
basically describe what a person looks like and acts like and sounds like under the influence or under the control of the Holy Spirit. In other words, these are the results, these are the fruits, these are the evidences that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives, proving that we are filled and controlled by Him. And notice, nowhere is there anything about speaking in tongues or performing miracles, or seeing visions, or prophesying, or doing any other sort of supernatural phenomenon. The filling of the Holy Spirit doesn't result necessarily in an emotional experience, but practical attitudes and actions. This is so foundational here. Being filled with the Spirit is not something you feel, it's something that you do. It's something that you are. It's, it, it's not subjective and like, oh, wow, well, I'm feeling good right now. Right? No, it's very objective. Like, for example, number one, the first fruit or evidence or consequence of being filled with the Spirit is joyfulness. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Sometimes you walk into a, a church and, and it resembles a, a, a funeral. And you're like, man, who died around here, man? Everybody's so like gloomy and sad, right? But listen, when a group of spirit-filled people get together, there's this atmosphere of joyful celebration. And the joy of the Spirit is reflected, I think, in a couple ways uh, within a body of believers. And it's right here in the text. Number one is fellowship, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and worship, singing and making melody with your heart, to the Lord. Let's talk about fellowship for a second. This first phrase here, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Again, not, not singing to one another here, but talking to one another about spiritual things. I think that's Paul's point. Spirit-filled Christians enjoy talking with one another about spiritual things. They're not content just to stand around with a cup of coffee and a donut in their hand talking about the weather or sports or, or, or the po- politics or you know, the, the gas prices or their kids' activities. Those things may break the ice for a few minutes, but eventually the Holy Spirit will lead the conversation to the things of God. And I would just say this, if you, if you find yourself talking to others and rarely do you ever get around to spiritual things or you feel awkward talking about spiritual things, that's a good indication that you aren't filled with the Spirit. You aren't controlled by the Spirit. He says you're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's talking about psalms would be, of course, those psalms that we read on a a weekly basis, those written by David and Asaph and others uh, in the Psalter, uh, designed to accompany be accompanied by some stringed instrument, and, and they were really, it was really the hymn book, if you will, of, of, of the nation of Israel. Then there's hymns. These would be non-inspired praises to God written by believers throughout the ages. There's spiritual songs, any type of song with a spiritual theme. Now, again, some would like to, to make a real rigid distinction between these three types of songs and kind of put us in the category of where there's the hymns and there's the choruses. And so, right, there's the, the hymn crowd and there's the chorus crowd. And uh, so let's have a traditional service and let's, let's have a contemporary service and let the people decide and let's intentionally split our church over a non-essential music, right? Instead of teaching, hey, let's, let's find expression, right? Being filled with the Spirit can be expressed in a variety of ways and styles. And so whenever we come together, if we're spirit-filled, spirit-controlled, there should be this fellowship, this joyful fellowship that's going on. In fact, over the years, I've had 
from time to time, people come to me and, and, and real serious and sober, like pastor, you know, we're really kind of grieved. You know, when we come into the service, we come into those back doors and, and man, it's just, it's just too much talking and, and it's too loud and, and we want to be able to come into a quiet place and just get our hearts ready for worship. And, and I'm like, hey, I totally respect that. I appreciate that. I'm sure you're coming from a church background that that's kind of what they did and they let the, all the fellowship be out in the parking lot and the fellowship all whatever. But when you came in the sanctuary, it was like, shh, right? And I just say, hey, personally, I love walking into this place and hearing the joyful fellowship. I love hearing the, the, the cacophony of voices and people just talking and chattering together and, and catching up with one another and, and, and just the smiles and the energy. Uh, that, that, to me, is an indication of a spirit-filled group of people, is fellowship. Number two is worship. Worship, which is joy expressed to God through musical communication. Fellowship is joy expressed to one another, right? Worship is joy expressed to God through musical communication. This is more the, ver- the fellowship is the horizontal, the worship is the vertical. And he says here, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Notice he doesn't say anything about your voice. Isn't that a good thing, right? That, that you might not be able to sing well uh, with your voice, but you can always uh, make melody in your heart to the Lord, Amen. And that's the point here is he's saying, listen, a spirit-filled person sings with all their heart. It's, it's heartfelt worship. They could never be accused of, of heartless, dead, apathetic worship. Why? Because they have a sincere passion for God that flows out of their hearts. They have a song in their heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from where? The heart. Stated another way, you could say this way, whatever is in our hearts comes out of our mouths, which means that how we sing and worship God is a reflection of what's in our hearts. And if you sing lame, and I'm not saying you have a bad voice, I'm just saying you're just like checked out during the, the music time, during the worship time, it's evidence that you don't have a song in your heart. Your heart is not full of praise to God, so, so you just kind of stand there and mumble the words of the songs, and here we are singing, joyful, joyful, we adore you. Now. Or, you know, when I survey the wondrous cross, and you're looking at your watch going, no, no, when are we getting out of here again? Man, I'm hungry. That's, that's coming out of your heart. When a person's heart is, is genuinely filled with praise for all that God is and all that God has done for them, they, they naturally sing out loud and strong with great passion and enthusiasm. And I think that's one of the most obvious indications that person is filled with the Spirit. He's controlled by the Spirit. I mean, just think about church history for a second. Whenever the Holy Spirit has poured out uh, powerfully throughout the, the history of the church in, in revival. Um, it's always been accompanied by two things. What do you think they are? Number one is great preaching, the preaching of the Word of God, but also great singing. You may not know this, but before the Reformation, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of singing going on in, in the Catholic Church. And, and so Martin Luther brought him singing to the church. That's part of the Reformation. The Wesleyan Revival, Charles Wesley, as you know, uh, the great hymn writer wrote some 6,000 hymns. For those of us that are 
a little older in the, in the room. We remember the old evangelistic rallies, not necessarily D.L. Moody, but yeah, Moody's preaching and Ira Sankey's singing and music and maybe more, more of us would remember Billy Graham and George Beverly Shea, right? God seemed to use a, the, a preacher and a musician, right, together to lead thousands to Christ. For some of you hippies out there, Jesus movement. You remember uh, in the 60s and 70s, right? Uh, in, in California, there was this Jesus movement, and, and from that spawned the Maranatha praise music. Remember that? that? That was kind of the hill song of the day or the sovereign grace of the day. And even in our day, uh, we're seeing this gospel centered resurgence. And, and we're seeing uh, musicians rise up who are, who are proclaiming the gospel in their songs in new and fresh ways. People like the Gettys and Sovereign Grace. And, and it seems like there's this musical movement accompanying this gospel center movement. And so the first consequence or fruit of being filled with the Spirit is joyfulness. Secondly is thankfulness. Notice verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And so let me just say it this way. If you are a grumbler or complainer, if you're grumbling and complaining, you're definitely not in the spirit. You're in the flesh, okay? But if you're giving thanks, right, you're you're, you're constantly expressing your gratitude and appreciation to God for the many blessings that he's given you, then you are obviously filled with the Spirit. You're being controlled by the Spirit. Notice it says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. Not, in other words, we're not supposed to just give thanks some of the time, but all the time. Not just when things are going our way, but when they don't go our way, right? It's easy to, thank, to be thankful when things going, everything's going right in your life. But it takes the power of the Spirit to be thankful when the storms come in all things. Listen, it is not humanly possible to be thankful when you get diagnosed with cancer. But if you have the Spirit of God in you and He's controlling you, guess what? He makes it possible for you to be thankful that you can give thanks in all things, in, in both the good times and the bad times, because at the end of the day, there are no bad times, there are no bad things in the life of a Christian because God works all things together for what? For good. So there's absolutely nothing that can come into our lives that he doesn't somehow, someway, someday work out for his glory and our good. And so the spirit-filled believer learns to thank God for everything in their lives, knowing God uses everything, whatever it is, sickness or, or sorrow or suffering or trial or difficulty or disappointment or financial pressure or marital problems, right, to make us more like Jesus. And so we can be thankful. So there's joyfulness, there's thankfulness, and thirdly is submissiveness. Submissiveness, very practical, verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That word be subject simply means to arrange yourself under someone. It's a military term that was used to describe a soldier submitting himself to a superior officer. And so what he says here is be subject to one another, to one another. What we're, what we're taught here is, is mutual submission, putting others before ourselves, letting others go first, letting others sit in the front seat, right? Stop calling shotgun all the time, right? Uh, it's that kind of stuff. 
Uh, it's laying aside our own personal rights. It's promoting others rather than promoting ourselves. It's submitting our will to theirs, uh, sacrificing our desires so that their desires can be fulfilled, serving them rather than expecting them to serve us. Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, right? But with humility of mind, consider others more important than yourself. Don't just look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Jesus said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve. Mark 10, 45. And, of course, he modeled this when he washed his disciples' feet, these, these arrogant guys who were arguing over who was the greatest. And he just humbly submitted to, the, the, to that role of a slave and picked up that basin of water and that towel and began washing their feet. And notice it says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Not only are we following the example of Christ, but we're doing these things out of deep reverence for Christ because we're fearful of ever dishonoring him or displeasing him. And so, so we know that we're going to stand before Christ someday and give an account of our lives. And so that motivates us to humbly submit to one another. Now, we don't have time to go on, but notice, uh, if you know this, this book, this letter, Ephesians, that Paul goes on to practically illustrate and apply verse 21 in, in the verses that follow. Verse 22, of course, wives submitting to your own husbands in the Lord, but then he talks about uh, really how submission uh, looks like within the family, between wives and husbands, between children and parents, between slaves and masters. And then going on into the armor of God and battling sin and prayer. And so, how about we end this way? Last week we began by asking you to raise your hand if you thought you were a spirit-filled Christian. I want to close today by getting you to ask yourself some questions that will help you determine whether or not you're a spirit-filled Christian. And please don't try to write these down. Uh, they're all written out on the, on the outline in the back under the application questions. But just sit there and listen for a second and, and just let the weight of these questions permeate your mind and your heart and, and say, am I a spirit-filled Christian or not? So from this text, Ephesians 5 Am I expressing joy in fellowship with others and worship to God? Am I always thankful for everything in my life? Am I submissive to others, humbling, humbly serving and putting them first? Am I getting along with my spouse, children, parents, and coworkers? Am I submissive to and respectful of my husband's leadership? Am I unconditionally and sac sacrificially loving my wife? Am I obedient and respectful toward my parents? Am I faithfully instructing my children in the ways of the Lord without exasperating them in the process? Am I trustworthy? Am I a trustworthy, obedient employee who works as unto the Lord? Am I a fair and understanding employer? Am I standing firm in the full armor of God against the schemes of Satan? Am I depending on the Lord in prayer and experiencing an effective prayer life? How about these questions from Galatians 5? Am I loving? Am I joyful? Am I peaceable? Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I good? Am I faithful? Am I gentle? Am I exercising self-control? And then how about these questions from other passages in the New Testament? Am I convicted when I sin? 
Am I convinced that I'm truly saved? Am I a bold witness for Christ? Am I generous with my time, talents, and treasures? Am I using my spiritual gifts to serve others within the body? Am I growing in my understanding of God's word? Am I being diligent to preserve unity in the church? Am I exercising wisdom and discernment in every area of my life? Am I gaining victory over sinful habits in my life? Am I becoming less conformed to the world and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Remember, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is invisible but his work is not. Remember with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 8, he said you, can, you can't see the wind, right? Or you, excuse me, you hear the wind, but you necessarily can't see it, but you can see its effects, right? You can see its effects, right? You can't, you can't necessarily see the wind out there. You can't see these, these waves blowing things, but you can see the effects. You can see the leaves blowing in the trees, right? And, and across the ground, you see the effects of the wind. Well, in the same way, you can't see the Spirit, but you can see the effects of the Spirit. And when these things that we're talking about are visible in your life, you can have the confidence that you are Spirit-filled, you are Spirit-controlled. And so we need to pray that the Spirit of God would manifest Himself in our lives in these very practical, tangible, doable ways. When D.L. Moody was a young man, someone came up to him and said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man who is completely surrendered to the Holy Spirit. And Moody quickly replied, by the grace of God, I'll be that man. I hope that's your passion and that's your prayer, that, uh, that you would be that person, that man, that woman that young person, that child who is completely surrendered and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for um, your word and how it does just clarify things that um, can be very confusing, especially when we look around us and see some of the practices of other believers, some of the beliefs of other believers, some of the practices of other churches. It can get very confusing to know what's right and what's wrong and what's acceptable and what's dishonorable. And Lord, we just thank you for your word being very clear on this issue. And I pray that you would help us to, first of all, implement these truths that we've learned these last couple of weeks about the filling, controlling of the Spirit into our own personal lives. And then, Lord, if, if it be your will that you would make us sensitive to those around us and that we would be able to maybe... Um, Come alongside some folks in love and grace and point these things out to them. Maybe those who have gone off into a more charismatic uh, way of thinking about the Spirit and it's, and it's ultimately hurting them and their spiritual walk not helping them. Lord, that we would know how to just come alongside and graciously speak the truth in love and, um, and, and, and the whole time enjoying our fellowship with with our brother and sister in Christ, if they're truly in Christ, Lord, that we would keep the main thing the main thing and, uh, and not part ways or part fellowship uh, with, with other true believers who may believe different things about the Spirit. And so, Lord, give us that, that wisdom, that discernment, and that balance. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.